we learn more and more that when we are calmer and in a calm space, it's better and easier for us to make important, difficult decisions. But also what you just painted at the beginning of our talk is easier to connect with people. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. I just had a phenomenal conversation with Jackie Brassy, PhD. She wrote a book called Deliberate Calm, How to Learn and Lead in a Volatile World. Pick that one up, please. Because we go and talk about being calm, creating the right environment for you, finding the right tools to be able to handle all of the stresses that we get. Because, look, I know we all feel stress out there and it's it's really how we take it on daily, whether we have the right routine in the morning or the right routine at night to start the recovery process. We go into some of the research she's done for this. And let me tell you, I had fun in this one. I was full on geeking out. I hope you enjoy it and follow her on all her socials. Jackie Brassy, this is a great one. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success magazine podcast. I'm your host, Tristan, and I've got Jackie Brassy with me out of Luxembourg. That's all the way around the other side of the globe. I'm in Los Angeles. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you, Tristan. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for making it happen. I, I know this has been this has been in the books for a while now, so I'm I'm finally glad we're meeting. So thank you. Me too. Me too. I very much look forward to it. So the book Deliberate Calm. I was attracted to the title first because in growing different businesses and, and being part of different companies. I always noticed that people were always inclined to work with me more because of my calm demeanor. And and I always saw the opposite as well, which is people pushing other people away because they were just too volatile to work with. And so that was the initial attraction. I'm like, oh, I want to know more about this. So I, I picked up your book, I went through it, and I want to start with why you wrote it. I mean, you probably get this question a lot, but why did you write it? Yeah, that's a very good question. And also what you just, the picture you just painted was very clear to me and also resonated very much uh, with me because it is also true, right? That uh, it's enjoyable to be with people who are calm, especially when it's tough and it's harder to work with people or to be with people who are also um, are very stressed. So why why I wrote this, this has been quite a journey and it's been a creative journey of three minds coming together from different angles, but really resonating and complementing each other's work. And why I came to this personally is that I have been fascinated by the brain and the mind in stress coming from a journey that I went through many years ago, which I now call my confidence crisis. 
which basically was the experience of uh, debilitating anxiety and stress that was just hindering me to reach my full potential. And so I already had done research in that space and I became fascinated by the whole research field around anxiety, not only from a clinical perspective and looking at challenges and the mental illness side of it, but also towards the potential and, and basically the, the sports psychology and, uh, you know, the um, positive opportunity if you can manage stress and anxiety. And eventually the picture deliberate calm is all about being at your best as a leader in difficult situations that actually naturally are making it hard to stay deliberate calm. And I think everybody wants to achieve it. It's something that is very appealing. I heard it many people say, wow, this is what I want. I want to know more about it. Yeah. Yet it's not always easy to do. Well, I feel like you're right. A lot of people are attracted to it and say, I want to be like that, right? I want to be more calm. I want to be less reactive, more thoughtful in my in my processes while working with people and living life in general. But why do you think most people can't achieve it or don't achieve it? Right. Yeah, but that that relates to the the paradox that we talk about in our book as well, which is the uh, adaptability paradox. Why that is, it's it's that's basically biology, uh, Tristan. So we learn more and more that when we are calmer and in a calm space, it's better and easier for us to make important, difficult decisions. But also, what you just painted at the beginning of our talk is easier to connect with people, right? Mm -hmm. But under stress and in challenging situations, it's harder to do because when we experience uh, stress, our uh, our brain and our body potentially shuts down. Right when we feel the when we feel stress or when we feel in danger, the opposite reaction is happening. We basically default to what we know, and it has to do with the fact that that our brain and body is focusing on managing the stress, processing an emotion that we experience, or processing uh, trying to to get control of a situation. And we we like to be able to predict situations. We love predictability. And so it becomes harder to stay calm. But most of the time in those situations, that's when we need it most. We need to have that calmness to respond in a way that serves the situation and that serves uh, us as well. Okay. That makes sense. I like that. You mentioned something that I never thought of before. And I know you did this on purpose for yourself. The name that you named a crisis in your past and when you said it, I was like, what? <laughs> you just opened up my mind to more. I, I said, this is what I wrote down, and I'm going to ask you about this. I put confidence crisis. You named your event. And then I thought, wait a second, should I do that too? Will it help to tell the story to lead me into a more positive direction? So now I'm using what happened as a stepping stone for greater things. And it became part of your actual history. Like if I'm reading a history book, like the depression in the United States, right? The earthquake of 94 in Los Angeles. Now, all of a sudden you're doing the same thing with your life, the confidence crisis. Tell me the reasoning behind naming that. That's beautiful. Yeah. You know, I, I had to give meaning to an event that happened and I wanted to explain what it was. When I was going through it, I had no idea what was happening uh, with me. And it happened also but later on in, uh, in my professional career, actually. It was about eight, nine years ago. I always had low-grade anxiety. But something uh, happened, I think the combination of a new job, a new environment, and uh, me not taking 100% care of myself, which I didn't know, but learned later. 
that caused my anxiety to increase. And eventually um, it took the joy away from me and my work life. But also I was frustrated because I couldn't reach my full potential. And I was at the same time hiding it because I felt ashamed of it. I thought, I don't know what's going on here. And, you know, it's all soft stuff. I just need to toughen up. And that led me on a journey to discover, to study this whole topic. And I realized, because I'm I'm an academic as well, I want to know what it means. And I realized by studying it, A, I am not alone, but B, there is science. There's biology and there is neuroscience that can explain this, which gave me the opportunity to open up and to be less ashamed. But it also helped me to actually tell about, uh, about what, talk about what was happening share my story with others, and through that also destigmatize uh, this topic a bit. But I, I also found out through my research that I was definitely not alone. And, you know, that was way before pandemic. It was way before when we started to talk about mental health and well-being much more openly these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was more about me and my performance. But the other thing that I realized, being also a learning and development uh, professional, this relates to learning and development as human beings and, and professionals. And so I saw the opportunity cost uh, on the other side as well. Mm-hmm. If we do not learn about this, if we do not understand this, and you know, then there's a huge opportunity that, uh, that we're missing. And so that's how I started to do more research and look at this topic from different angles beyond my personal story and my, my other work that I've written about. Yeah. I love that. I think that's a great hack, by the way, in, in a good way. I think well, we life should, life we threw me lemons. It. I made some lemonade out of it. Yeah. <laughs> And you named it. <laughs> and I named it, yeah, whatever, you know, confidence crisis. It's uh, in hindsight, you know, it's helpful to give it a name and to explain it. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that's part of, of also feeling like, uh, you know, you can uh, you can handle things. It gives you also the um, the baggage in your, or the, the, something in your backpack to, to, to deal with. So it also helps you then in the future to, to, to recognize situations and to give it a word and to also then respond to it. It's all part of also the concept deliberate calm, becoming aware of, of triggers, of signals and uh, responding effectively to it. Yeah. I love that. Now I'm going to do that. So thank you, Jackie. I appreciate that. I, I can't wait to hear it, uh, to, to learn more <laughs> about your so story. cool. Uh, <laughs> all right. Brain body connection. Yeah. Let's talk about that because I think finally we're we're starting to see more people say, hey, you know what? They're connected, right? You can't you yeah. can't have one without the other. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so tell me what you mean by that, because there's a whole chapter on that in the book. So a lot of people have focused also in the last couple of years about the, uh, you know, the, the famous uh, words pe- many people know are uh, the amygdala hijack, for example, where you feel stress, your brain shuts down and so on. And then mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, popularization around that and simplification and, and also uh, science has advanced. But often it's more about a particular part of your brain that has uh, impacts how you feel and how you respond. And that gives only part of the picture and it's not complete and and you know the the brain and the body are completely uh, connected and so what uh, what is important people need to realize that there is a top down effect so when you have stress there is of course uh, something happening in your brain that activates your sympathetic nervous system it impacts how your body feels and and how you respond and so on but there is also something else that goes bottom up right if you take care of your body if you take care of 
um, you can you can learn things to calm down to activate your parasympathetic nervous system, which impacts also your brain response and all these things we explain in a simplified way. Of course, it's it's all more complicated if you ask a deep expert, a deep neuroscientist, or a deep biologist. But what we often forget, uh, and what I forgot in the past as well, is that if you take care of your body and your mind by simple things like sleeping, eating well, uh, cardiovascular activity, uh, knowing how to breathe, that not only impacts how you feel physically, but also impacts your sensitivity of your brain and your body to stress. Mm. And those are, it's like, you know, what people in uh, sports psychology know and what people in the military uh, also know, but what we in the business context tend to forget. It's unbelievable, uh, Tristan, how we think that we can work for 24 hours a day and still think that we are at our best. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. And that's one of the things I did. I just uh, worked harder and harder, which, which was my coping mechanism before I got my confidence crisis uh, to the max and um, and not realizing that I actually was setting myself up for uh, for failure. And so that doesn't, uh, all of that, it doesn't stop at the brainstem. It's uh, all connected. The vagus nerve is connected to the body. There is, uh, you know, there is uh, more and more we know about the impact of uh, nutrition also uh, on uh, on the brain and on uh, emotions and how we respond. And so as long as that is evolving, it's important to 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 keep learning about that. And, um, and, to, and we, we talk in the book also about how you can set yourself up for success thinking about your personal operating model. And that includes this time for recovery, time for rest, time for uh, breaks, et cetera, et cetera. We heavily underestimate that. Most of the time we have focused on managing stress by just ignoring it and just acting at it as if it is not there. Yeah. Um, and, and we talk a lot about, well, that's, you know, what is more helpful. Uh, and, and there are many tools for that, but it it is more effective if you let it fall on fertile ground, which is taking care of the body and the brain. Oh, I like that. It's like weeding weeding out your your brain, weeding out your body from all the the toxins that you have, you know? It falls on on things that it can grow. I like that. I like that analogy a lot. Yeah. Jackie, I have a question for you as as far as your routine. So now that you've done the research and you've written this great book, what does routine look like for you that tries to include as much of this as possible so that you create a fertile environment to grow. Yeah. yeah. So I definitely have prioritized my sleep much okay. more than ever before. And that is, everybody knows about that, uh, but not everybody uh, does it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then other than that, I definitely have integrated more and more. One of my favorite things to do is really focusing on the breath, uh, doing breathing exercises, I plan for breaks during the day. And one of the tools that I also uh, use a lot, actually, I, I walk a lot. I move during the day. Mm-hmm. If I don't, uh, if I see that I have a back to back agenda, then I'll just uh, invite a couple of people to join me on a walk. And we have our meeting whilst walking outside. I have a couple of non negotiables as well, including that, but also uh, trying to, uh, to have time for other stuff. So, really prioritizing personal time. Uh, so, I, I make agreement. I agree with the teams that I work with and my, uh, my EA what time uh, that I want to have uh, space for recovery. And then um, one exercise that I really benefit a lot from is uh, morning intention setting. If you start your day and you reflect about what's going to, to happen today, 
we, we bring in the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett, a neuroscientist who talks a lot about the fact that we're predicting the whole the brain is always predicting. And so our response to any situation is based on prediction until we have learned that it's something else. And so that, that you know, that's also why we talk about, you know, if you learn that there are more possibilities, uh, you reframe your thoughts, then it gives you a broader repertoire of what is possible if you are under stress. And one way of uh, of building that uh, that muscle is by looking at your day and really reflecting on how do you want to show up today. You can never predict everything that happens during the day. You can also not predict or prevent any curveball happening, but you can actually take a little bit more of control by promising yourself or setting your intent that you want to show up with a calm in a calm way, and that you're, for example not going to take a decision during a particular meeting or that you will take a breath and that you will not let yourself be triggered by something that normally triggers you. And so if you visualize the day, then you proactively set yourself up for more success for unexpected events, because then you say, okay, if any unexpected thing happens, this is how I want to respond. If you build that awareness, if you uh, know when it's happening, and that's another thing you need to train, then you can actually intervene in that moment and you can stop your knee-jerk reaction by just calming down. And um, and also, you know, you can take a break, ask questions, you can be, you know, use curiosity, another tool that everybody has. And so that is all feeding into that calm. It doesn't mean, by the way, that deliberate calm title doesn't mean you feel completely calm all the time. Yeah, true. <laughs> it is about having that nagging discomfort of, of stress with you, but still being able not to respond to it uh, in, 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 in your standard way, but staying calm and open-minded. So that is extremely simple, the mechanism, but it's very hard to do. <laughs> Talking <laughs> about it is super easy. <laughs> it's funny. It's so true. It's not easy. And it's also a journey, right? I love that. I love how you said that in your brain, You've got so much stuff going on, like anger, sadness, disappointment, all this stuff. Yeah. But the way it comes out is very calm and easy <laughs> because you've trained yourself for many years, right? You you failed a lot. That's what it is. Of course. Of yeah. course. Uh, that's part of it. That's part of it. You're so right. I feel sometimes I'm like, ah, and then nothing comes out the same way, which is great, right? Training. Uh, <laughs> I have a question about your evening. Uh, recovery, because you do talk about recovery and how important it is. You talk about it and you associate it kind of like recovering like an athlete, which was a great analogy. I loved it. Yeah. Talk more about recovery. What does that look like? Because we never talk about it. In the United States, it almost never ta is talked about when it comes to a normal business or work environment. It always is applied to athletes. Mm -hmm. So tell me how we can apply it in the business world. Yeah, it's just, it's sad to hear that that is still, and I wonder also why it is, right? There is a value around not talking about it or, or as a value around uh, continuous uh, working, I guess then, but it's something you need to be intentional uh, about, Tristan, because Especially now, if you look 30 years back, there was still more structure around the way we worked. We left the office, there was no computer in our bed, there was no mobile phone and so on. The, the, the way we worked, there were, took care of, of certain structures and also uh, habits. Mm -hmm. uh, but now it goes on for 24 hours, day and night. And so this is really about, I mentioned the non-negotiables. Think about what is important, what matters, and put boundaries around it. So one of the things that I've done last year went completely crazy and and i work a lot with uh, the other side of the world so my um, my zooms also can go on forever 
I put breaks in my calendar where I'm not available. So after a specific time in the evening, I'm just done. I may still work, but I'm not talking. Winding down before bedtime. And I find that very hard to do. But how do you create space between the focus on your work and maybe looking at your laptop or looking at all the you know brain-stimulating lights? When do you wind down from that? And, uh, and when do you... Uh, creates the habit of going to sleep. Eh? When do you uh, shut down? And also one of the things I do is uh, intermittent fasting. I don't eat uh, or drink anything after eight o'clock, which all helps for a good night rest. And in the evening after seven o'clock, if possible, I will work, but I won't have those uh, Zooms. So only with exceptions. And so those things, eventually when people start to know it, then uh, then they can plan around that. And another thing that I most days, most nights of the week will do is I go for a walk with my husband for an hour oh, nice. and we catch up and we have exercise and we have quality time. So I love that. Is there anything besides the walking that's a routine that you fall on saying at this time I'm going to read and then meditate or breath work or what else is there so that it sets that momentum going in that direction yeah that that happens after uh after seven from seven to eight it's, i'm with the family and then uh, after eight uh, i still have a little bit of cleaning up and, and email stuff going on and then walking and then i really i don't do fixed uh, so meditation and breathing is often i do that in the mornings and during the day and also I alternate sometimes. The practice in the evening is uh, between seven and eight and then family time and after eight uh, walking. And then around 10, a light goes off if possible. It doesn't always happen, as you can imagine, in the industry where I work. But I try to do that as much as possible because I'm a morning person. I like the mornings uh, and I like nice. seeing the, the light in the morning. One of the things that, in, that inspires me a lot is the work from Andrew Huberman from Stanford, who also says it's very important in the morning to see the first daylight. So I like to go out also, if I can, for walks and, and see that uh, daylight, but it doesn't always happen. So there is a certain routine. At the same time, I have degrees of freedom because becoming too dogmatic about it uh, makes it uh, can also make it uh, too stressful. Yeah. <laughs> you feel like you fail uh, if you don't live up to it. But that's roughly, um, and it's also not always possible. So I have these these set things, the morning intention setting and the seeing daylight the walking, the breaks, uh, intermittent fasting. And it all, you know, it's, it's fine-tuning for many years, actually, what works for me. I'm not saying this is something you should do because for everybody, something else may be uh, helpful. Yeah. What is important is, I think, to, to try things out and to find a good rhythm and to find a, a way that works for you and that, uh, that, uh, that also sets you up for success in the context of the work that you do. Because we all have different jobs. Yeah. True. Uh, yeah, I have a friend uh, who's a doctor and he uh, needs to work at night times and, you know, he, he gets a huge benefit from benef um, from heart uh, meditation and talks about it uh, a lot as well. But it is that's a journey. What I emphasize is it's intentional. Nobody's doing it for you. So it is something that you need to do and that you need to learn about and educate yourself about. And there's so much available that can teach you, uh, can teach you these things. You know, Jack, I agree with you. I... I find it easier for me to do the morning routine, right? To get going and to get it to get it all ready to kind of what you said, where you said kind of visualizing the day, being more intentful. Definitely have got the morning one down. The challenge is when it's the evening, sometimes I don't always do that routine and I just 
it, I feel like there's not an end, right? And that becomes a challenge sometimes. Yeah. So some of the hacks that I've done for me to be able to kind of interrupt my patterns is to put a whole bunch of alarms on on my iPhone so that it gets annoying. But even then, sometimes that doesn't work. I've, I've also noticed you're wearing an Aura ring or not? Yeah. By feedback, yeah. Yeah, yeah but yeah. it's one of the things that I do as well. It's not my only, uh, but you know, you can also have, for some people that may be fantastic. So if you then set your alarms and you learn, hey, that's working, <laughs> then you can learn. You know, that's a great thing to do. For, for other people, this causes a lot of anxiety as well, because then they see actually how bad it is and <laughs> they can't handle it. That's very true. All right. So I see a portrait, a painting, a picture behind you. It's an open field with, with a white picket fence. Where is that? So that picture, and you can't see, I won't move the camera, but there, it's actually in South Africa. It's in the Klein Karoo, and that is the place where I got engaged about 16 years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love that you have that there. It's beautiful. All right. So help me understand, in the process of writing this book, what was different than what you thought it was going to be like what was like whoa i didn't i didn't expect that what surprised you about the research that you did anything so when we were writing this book of course this takes place over a couple of years well a couple of years yes and we were um starting in the pandemic and um separately i'm also leading research uh, for the mckinsey uh, health institute which is a separate institute where i work it's a non-fee generating part of uh, of my firm we do a lot of research to uh, employ health and well-being. And we were writing about the concept deliberate calm and how important it is, you know, uh, looking at the future. We need to learn, uh, continuously develop ourselves. The world, the world is going faster and, and change is accelerating. And so uh, people need to learn the skills to deal with unfamiliar high stakes uh, situations. And that's how we came to this concept. One of the things that I realized when look, when combining that research from the McKinsey Health Institute with writing of this book was actually that the data that we collected made it very clear how much the knowledge of these skills are needed in the world of work. Mm. Because two things, two, two important data points we found was that one out of four of the people that we surveyed, and, and that survey was done in 15 countries, 70% of the of the working population, one out of four was experiencing or is experiencing uh, burnout symptoms. Mm. And this was based on a, on a validated scale. So all the work that we do is evidence-based. So we thought, okay, that, that is quite high. But the other data point that we found was that one out of three indicated at the point of surveying that they were feeling distress, which is almost like a precursor, yeah, right? Yeah. Feeling, feeling less uh, restless and, and feeling stressed, which is also high. And if you look at the, the, the science that we explain in the book, you know, if you are uh, under stress, and the, the, then you will have the increased probability that you default to old behavior, but also that you you get a bit of a tunnel vision, and you you know you, it's difficult to create new things and to learn new things, as we all explain. Where in the world that we live in, and if this number is one out of four and one out of three distress and one out of four burnout, you know the question is what is happening in organizations? Are we actually on mass um, in a state of protection most of the time? So that was an eye opening. That was uh, an interesting insight. And one of the things that we looked at is also what drives a lot of the stress, as people indicated, was uh, toxic workplace behavior. 
And, and so the question was also that we had, a hypothesis that we had is, you know, I don't think that most people go to work with bad intents. I think the world is full with great people and they go to work to do something good. But sometimes when we feel stressed and, and when we feel under pressure, the behavior that we show is not always great. And so these two things coming together at the same time were such a big aha and such an insight that I had not predicted because it basically made a ton of sense uh, of bringing them together. But if you then put that picture that I just painted in the world that we are today with so many things happening, I mean, the pandemic is behind us, but there every day something new is happening and the increase of change and the technological advancements are also uh, going through the roof. You know, it's, 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 it's critical. So one of the insights that I had in that process that I wanted to synthesize here is that, you know, one of the biggest risk factors or biggest challenges that we have in the world of today is lack of awareness and lack of this deliberate calm to, to, to respond to the challenges that we face. So that is a very long answer, Tristan, to your brief question. But, you know, that made me think, standing on the balcony and combining these two things uh, along the way. Here's what I think about what you said. I have questions. So first, what? how do you categorize someone that's in distress? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. So in our case, we have not done clinical research. We ask a couple of questions. So we, uh, the distress was a three-item questions. I feel uh, restless. I feel stressed, etc. So uh, it's a it's a it's a screener that uh, that we uh, used. It comes from researchers in the Netherlands, and it is also predictive. If you have a high score on that, it's predictive of potential sickness absence, uh, leave of absence over time. So three questions. That is not the clinical uh, diagnosis. The same with the burnout symptoms, right? We ask 12 questions and people score that they experience them uh, every now and then to very high. And that's 12 questions. And that group of people was one out of four. And that is all about uh, yeah, being, uh, being exhausted, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But in that state, we know that it is you know, harder work if the stress then increases to stay calm, yeah, but also harder work to to be creative and to learn new things. And because the group is is quite a big group, then the question is, gosh, uh, what are we doing? Uh, Naya, that <laughs> what do we need to learn in the world of work today? So, so a lot of the work uh, that I do is on employee health and well being and how organizations can create environments where people can thrive. Uh, that sports analogy that we want to bring to the topic, as opposed to where people actually uh, burn out and uh, eventually. Um, will leave the organization or maybe leave uh, because they're um, unwell. Yeah, you know, that that makes a lot of sense here. And I love that you brought up the workspace here. There's a book called Brave New Work by Aaron Dignan, I think his name is. And he talks about, he doesn't go into research like you, by the way, so I love your research. But he does mention something that you reminded me about, that the work environment creates this a sense of bureaucracy that instead of creating creativity, like an environment of creativity, it pushes people to what you call distress and then burnout instead, right? And so from what you're telling me in your research, do you feel like part of the challenge is that the people working, like this work world, are we not equipped for the challenges that we face at work? Or is it actually the work environment that's the problem? Which one is it? I think, Tristan, it's uh, it's a bit of both. We 
emphasized in our research, though, that there is a huge responsibility for the organization because the organization is changing in a world that is changing. And therefore, the social context is hugely important to how we can perform. If you, and, and we saw that as well, if you experience a bad working environment, then there is nothing you can do actually to deal with that. If you go to your work and, but not not all organizations are, are bad environments. I think actually, I hope in my case, I experience a work environment where I feel I can thrive. And so work is good, can be fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. But social context is hugely impactful. At the same time, the skills that we talk about in Deliberate Calm and the skills that I talked about following my confidence crisis they had to do with me and they had to do with, and so you can empower yourself also to deal with environments that are not always predictable, but is a huge responsibility for organizations to create environments where people can thrive. And then you hear a lot about these concepts that we talk about these days, like inclusivity, safety, psychological safety, growth environments, a space where you can make mistakes and learn from mistakes, where you can have a growth mindset, etc. So environment is hugely, uh, hugely important, but it's a bit of both. I think there's a huge opportunity for building these uh, these skills, plus At the same time, as I explained, you know, there's potentially also, we talk about the domino effect in our book. If you feel stressed as a leader, it's hard for you to actually regulate your emotions and to deal with the stress. And and that comes out as, you know, you're shouting to other people or you're also stressed and that impacts. We started the the podcast on this. Then, of course, that goes further. And And so by learning these skills, you can stop that effect and the contagious, negative contagious effect that uh, that stress can have in the organization. So it works both ways. Yeah, I agree with you. I I do think, though, that this is on a personal level. I think that a lot of people are missing the self-accountability, though, because they don't know where to start. That's why I loved your book, by the way. It kind of lays it out. It's like, hey, uh, at the end with the whole operating system, right? Your personal operating system, when you talk about that. I think you're giving us some of the tools that we need to operate in a more calm manner. So I I love that you're telling us, hey, you know what? Here it is. It's your your job. Just get it right. Do it. Right. Practice. And I think it starts with us, by the way. I can't I can't put this on an employer to do it, but I do think that the environment matters too. So how can the employer do a better job if the employee or the staff member is is already doing things to to get better? How can the employer mm-hmm. in, enhance the environment? There's a huge amount of uh, opportunity uh, of bringing this to the workplace. And it starts in the boardroom. It starts with role modeling from leaders leaders that actually show deliberate calm and that show inspirational leadership, have the values around taking care of people, creating a space where people can thrive. And then, you know, you can look at from an ecosystem perspective, what type of people do you bring in your boardroom? What, what type of people do you bring into your company? Who do you hire? How do you train them? How do you reward them? And what is the behavior that you tolerate? And what do you find important? And that, you know, the whole DNA of your organization uh, matters there. And when that comes together, it can be wonderful. But I agree. I mean, I find this also inspiring. I can take the accountability and the responsibility for how I want to show up. Mm-hmm. Also, when it's difficult, right? Um, most most places have people that do not always agree with it, with, with each other, and having a, a conflict uh, can be uh, productive or can be uh, uh, destructive. 
And as an individual, if you take your responsibility in that, that's wonderful. That doesn't always happen, right? And so that combination, I think, is super powerful. But there's a huge amount of things you can do. And we have trained people, trained leaders in many places, of course. We have a wonderful case study where... It doesn't need to take a lot, Tristan. You can start with an hour or 30, you know, 30 minutes a week virtually over a couple of months, and it, it makes a huge difference. And that's what we found in a, in a control study that we did. Not only did it improve people's leadership behaviors, but it also improved the experience of health and well-being and seven and a half times uh, higher than the control group. I mean, it is absolutely possible if you want to, but, uh, but you do need to invest in it, of course. No, you need to make it a priority, right? Yeah. I love that. People matter. This was a good conversation. I, I really enjoyed this. It put a lot of things in perspective for me and probably for the people listening in as well. So what are you working on next that you're excited about? Ah, so many things. I would love to also learn from you. What is the key thing that you took out of it? And what did you learn? What excites you? But I will tell you what, what's next for me. So I continue to work on this uh, and I continue to do more research, but also bringing in a more holistic perspective to health and well-being. In the, in the McKinsey Health Institute, we are uh, actually uh, testing more insights and a bigger, broader model to employee health and well-being, not only mental health and well-being. And uh, we're about to go live in 28 countries. So later this year, we will come out with a new report uh, and stay tuned. It's all going to be freely available. And in the next couple of years, I mean, there's so much more that we need to learn still in this space. I am personally extremely interested in the evolving field of uh, biofeedback and learning more about um, how that can help us become better leaders and set ourselves up for uh, for success. Um, and I think we have still a journey to go there. There is a lot developing, but I think we, we need to learn more. So I look forward to exploring that. That makes sense. That makes sense with the Aura Ring. And um, I don't know if you've ever tested out Viome. Are you, are you familiar with Viome? V-I-O-M? I'm not. Tell me what it is. So Viome, we, we talked to the creator of the company and... It's really a set of tests that tell you how your body is doing. So take a look at it. Um, they're doing some pretty cool stuff. So it tells you kind of like what your body is missing, what it needs to focus more on, but it makes it affordable for most people to be able to take uh, these tests that really weren't available before. So it matches, it goes along with the ring pretty well, right? The idea. Yeah, I, I test multiple things. It's not that uh, this is not my only. Uh, I've tested also a couple of other products with students and oh, nice, and see how we can. Uh, yeah, so I like that. You know, let's see, let's see. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's an exciting space to be. But um, I like that. Well, here, here's what I learned from you, everyone listening in. If you can pick up the book, uh, Deliberate Calm, very, very great book. It's kind of you'll go back to some pages and be like, oh, I need to try that out in my life. So very well written. I loved the research. I think for me, I, I loved the confidence crisis. I'm glad we started with that. Uh, I'm like, oh, I need to name some of my crises. This is great. <laughs> so it gives me it gives me the ability to tell better stories to myself about what happened and to other people, right? So that's why I liked it. I was like, oh, this is good. The next part was you said lack of awareness from people is the biggest challenge because we we don't we're really not aware of what we're missing and a lot of that is the tools that that you kind of lay out it's like hey guys you really need to do this this be a lot more proactive 
take breaks, breathe, walk. A lot of these tools we know are already there, but we just don't know how to use them or even go, in fact, to use them, go into actually using them. And I thought that does make a lot of sense if we want to achieve a better a better version of ourselves, we really got to pay attention to ourselves a lot more. So you put that right in front. And Tristan, I would I would love to go a step further because yes, it is important to get a better version of yourself if you want that. And most people want that. But it is also meaningful if you put it in the context of what is needed. Uh, what does the situation call for? And what do I want to achieve? Which is often bigger than just personal self-development. You know, we are in a world where we need to solve wicked problems. It's tough and we can't do it in individual silos anymore. And in order to have the courage to actually cross those bridges and to connect beyond the traditional way of working that we're used to in the working context, of course, that's where my play field is, uh, where the working field is that I uh, do a lot of research, is that dual awareness that we talk about. So it, it is a book that is, yes, it's about you, your own development, but it's also about, hey, what type of leadership do we need to actually solve these difficult problems in the world? And so that is at the core of its, uh, uh, of this book as well. You know, uh, that reminded me of something Lou Ignaro said, Dr. Lou Ignaro. He was the one that did the NO. He's known as the NO doctor, nitric oxide, I think it was. His research was the one that set um, the little blue pill, the Viagra pill into into the whole uh, production. Uh, But he said something very similar that you said, which is researchers, I think you've been doing the community thing a lot longer than most people because researchers get along so well. You need need the research that this other person did and that this other person did, and you have to work together. You set a great example for for the rest of the business world, because we don't always do that on this end. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you bring in community is extremely important. I love that you said that. Who do you need to be? I'm going to translate this in, 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 okay, I'm going to just take it how I heard it. Who do you need to be now to be able to help more people, whether it's your family or the greater world, right? I loved it. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you too for the invitation and thank you for uh, the inspiration as well. You gave me a couple of things to think about uh, after this uh, conversation too. So wonderful. Thanks, Jack. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it. 